12 apostles who are taught by Christ to carry the gospel forth to the uttermost ends of the earth. And so as these disciples are learning to do that, they begin with a short-term mission trip just to Galilee. Jesus makes a statement, don't go to the Samaritans and don't go anywhere amongst the Gentiles. Let's just keep this thing local. So as he's beginning to give them instructions, this is them sort of taking those baby steps, just starting to get their feet wet. And so there's a lot we can learn here as we learn how both how Christ sort of begins to disciple his guys and, and to give them instructions and to equip them in terms of how to take the gospel forth to the ends of the earth. And there's a lot for us to learn as we observe him doing that. Not only his instruction method, but also as they are being instructed by him, we learn how we are called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So I invite you to turn with me, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, as is our custom. We will read the text. We will pray God to open our eyes and our our hearts to hear and to understand, and then we will, we will get to work. So if you would, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that you are not some totally unknown, mysterious deity who is far from us, but that you speak to us, that you draw near to us, that you even walk among us. We thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus to walk among us in the flesh 2,000 years ago. And we thank you, Lord, that you are very present with us here this morning in this room here with Bridge Baptist Church. Father, you are teaching your disciples, and we, we desire to learn. Help us to be your disciples, Father. We pray, God, that you'd open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to understand that your spirit would shine upon the text, that you would illuminate the passage before us, that you would give us understanding, Father, and more than that, that you would strengthen our faith, God, that we would obey, that we would take from what you have taught to your 12 apostles and that we would try to apply it to our lives and be like them, striving ultimately to be like you. We love you, God. We just pray, Lord, as we look at this verse this morning, that we would understand what it means to have authority over unclean spirits and what ultimate deliverance will one day look like. Most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to understand what our role is in bringing the gospel, bringing the good news of salvation to Kamloops, to British Columbia, and beyond. Help us to be your faithful messengers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. In the January-February issue of Christianity Today, if you subscribe to the magazine Christianity Today, you'll notice in the most recent issue there was a really stunning article that was released. It's a culmination of over a decade of research by a sociologist by the name of Robert Woodbury. He's a sociologist. This is not a theologian. It's not a guy that teaches at a seminary somewhere. He is a sociologist. He specializes in demographics. And for the last 12 years or so, starting in 2000 and finishing up his work in 2012, he he conducted perhaps the most extensive analysis of democracy, the rise of freedom in recent history. He studied nations. He looked at different countries around the world and how these nations, how freedom began to advance within those countries. And he came to a startling realization. The question he wanted to ask, the question he was trying to answer was, what is the single greatest contributing factor to the advancement economic as well as educational to just the progression of freedom in a country. And so his work comes to this startling conclusion. The work of Christian missionaries turns out to be the single largest factor by far, I might add, in ensuring the health of the nations. This is the discovery that he says landed on him like, quote, an atomic bomb. Quite startling for an individual who lives in a world of academic research that oftentimes belittles and mocks, makes fun of missionaries as these sort of backwards individuals who don't really know anything about anything and all too often, as the common stereotype is presented, make things worse. His research proved exactly the opposite. To be specific, 
Woodbury's research supported this sweeping claim. This is a direct quote. Areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption in government, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental, non-profit associations. Those are seven things that he found in his research. The single largest contributing factor to a country that climbs its way out of poverty, to a country that climbs its way out of disease and sickness, to a country that will begin to educate its members, to a country that will begin to actually contribute as a society for nonprofit charitable purposes. The single largest contributing factor, a result of 12 years of exhaustive research looking at the rise of every single country in the world and comparing it and contrasting it with other countries that did not have a Christian influence and where they're at, comparatively speaking, for the last 300 years. The inescapable conclusion is this. Convert, he uses the term conversionary missionaries. Conversionary missionaries who started off not wanting to build orphanages, not wanting to dig wells, not wanting to start nonprofit charitable organizations. Conversion, as he calls it, conversionary missionaries who went into a country with the desire simply to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to ask people to convert, to make the decision to commit their lives to following Jesus Christ. It is these guys who had the single largest role to play in improving the world. And he even contrasts it with what he calls a nuance in his research. Makes a statement, this is what he calls a a nuance. Quote, there is one important nuance to all of this data. The positive effect of missionaries on democracy applies only to, again, conversionary Protestants. Those are his exact words. It, It is only applicable with conversionary Protestants. Protestant clergy financed by the state, by this he means Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian type missionaries, non-conversionary type missionaries. Protestant clergy financed by the state as well as Catholic missionaries prior to the 1960s had no comparable effect in areas where they worked. So it wasn't just missionaries going in and doing good missionary activity, like giving gifts to kids on Christmas, or digging wells, or building orphanages, as good as those things are. Because they had similar missionaries, non-conversionary missionaries, who did those same types of activities, and there was little effect overall on long-term health of the country. What it was, was it was people who had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and desired for other people to have that same relationship with Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, It is disciples who know God, who know Christ, and who seek to share that with others. These are the individuals who are changing the world. And that's exactly how Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 starts. I want you to look. Now, the whole chapter, a whole chapter is going to deal with Jesus' instructions to his disciples in terms of what their missionary activity is going to look like. But it starts with verse 1. It says, he called to him his 12 disciples. Verse 2, it says the names of the 12 apostles are these, and it goes on to list the names of the 12 apostles. But you understand that to be an apostle, these guys, they weren't first apostles, they were first disciples. And the same is true for us, you and me in this room. Before we have any chance to make any kind of positive contribution to society, before we can do any good, long-term benefits to the world around us, we first are called to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, because there is nothing that changes this world besides knowing him and having a personal relationship with him. So it says here, he called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And we're going to camp down on this verse today because in a lot of ways we are similar to these guys and in a few critical ways we are different. Makes a statement, he called to him his 12 disciples and then verse 2, it refers to them as apostles. In one sense, these guys are unique. They perform a vital service to the long-term history of the church. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that they, along with Christ as a cornerstone, 
are the foundation stones of the church, and the whole church is built upon these guys and the work that they did along with the prophets. So in that sense, their work is unique and unrepeatable. There will never be any more sort of apostles, okay? You're not going to have these guys that walked with Jesus, that saw him in the flesh, that were discipled directly by him, living and working among us today. They have died. They have moved on to heaven. Their work still continues through the scriptures. They are still ministering to us today. We're called to be like them, but we won't be them. In some ways, we will imitate them, we will model them, but in one very fundamental and critical way, they perform a work which is prior to ours, which gives rise to ours. Now, last week I made the statement that we are all called to engage in a mission, a ministry that is every bit as valuable and as important as what they did. Now, when I make that statement, I just want to clarify for you today. When I say that the work you're called to do is every bit as valuable and as necessary and as important as what the disciples are called to do, don't misunderstand me. There is a difference between a priority of order and an equality of worth. When I say your work is every bit as valuable and as important and as necessary as their work, when you hear that statement, I don't want you to think, okay, like I'm going to go out and write a New Testament book of the Bible. I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to try and feel the Spirit and, uh, you know, first Josh Clay Camp. Here we go. I'm just going to write it out and we'll just slide this thing in right here behind Revelation and, you know, I want to be like these guys. Don't get that idea in your head. That is not remotely what I'm saying. When I say that our work is every bit as valuable and as important as their work, I think that's going to become clear, particularly as we work our way through Matthew chapter 10, and particularly as we work our way all the way through the book of Matthew. That said, there's a difference between equality of worth and a priority of order. Their work takes a role that necessarily must come before our work. And this is critical. And you know this from personal experience if you just stop to think about it. In my house, we give my daughters chores, yes. Even at the ages of two and four, they got things they need to do. And I can't wait till they get older and more coordinated because I'll give them much more things to do as they get older. But for now, they have chores. And they help mom clean up the kitchen. So when it's time to clear the uh, dinner table, they will take the plates from the dinner table. They'll take them into the kitchen. Now, Olive, she's the younger one. She's the little red-headed girl running around. She's two. Her eye-hand coordination is significantly less than Chloe. What is their respective assignment? Olive turns on the hot water. Turns on, so mom can put the plate under the water and rinse the plate off. And then we'll give the plate to Chloe, who will then try her very best to organize those dishes into the dishwasher in a neat, in a neat fashion. Now, which comes first? Putting the dirty dishes in the dishwasher or running them under the hot water? Obviously, rinsing them under the hot water. That's the order. In order to achieve the task, there is a logical order in which the task needs to be accomplished. So in one sense, I can say to you, my younger daughter, without the same eye-hand coordination and without having grown and developed as mentally as much as Chloe has, her task in terms of priority of order is more important than Chloe's task. Now, if I just run the dishes under the hot water, are they clean? Some of you have teenage boys and they try to tell you that, yes, in point of fact, that's all we really need to do here with these dishes. But you know they're not quite clean. They're not sterilized. They're not been run through the dishwasher. They're not been heated and all the goodness that goes on in the machine, right? So you got to put those dishes in the machine. Do you have clean dishes apart from the dishwasher having run its course, apart from Chloe having put the plate in the dishwasher? No. The task is left unfinished. And despite however many dishes you might have in your home, sooner or later you're going to want to see that thing through to finish, right? Chloe's job is every bit as important as Olive's job. Olive's job is the job that gets the rest of the work started. There is a priority of order there is a natural and needed first step. 
that does not mean that there is not an equality of worth in the work that's being done. I need you guys to hear that today. When we look at these 12 guys, we are tempted to see supermen. Men that could not be touched, men that were conquerors that just went out and took the world for Jesus. And when we look at them, we see people that we could never possibly hope to be like. They're not that different from you and me. They're not that spectacular. They failed in the same ways that you and I fail. And in other ways, they probably have failed more spectacularly than you and I have done. They needed to come first. We're called to do what they did. Our work comes second. That's the difference between us and them. We're to be like them, and yet we need to remember they performed a task which was essential to the foundation of the church, which we are never called to reduplicate. We're never called to try and form a group of 12 or to try and imitate the, the apostles in that sense, to try and become apostles ourselves. These terms are restricted to these men. Now, moving on. It says he called to him his 12. You'll notice before they're apostles, they're disciples. The word means that they discipline their lives to be like Jesus. They are his disciples. They are called to follow his way of thinking and his way of living. It's twofold. There's belief and then there's practice. There's what you think, there's what you know, there's what you understand, and then there's what you do. And as a disciple, these guys are going to imitate him not only in what he believes, but also in the way that he lives. Now, we just finished preaching last two and a half years. We worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Do you think Jesus is a little bit controversial? Yes, he is. Do you think he's living in a total pagan society that has no concept of God? By no means. This is a very religious society. They're more religious than most very religious societies today are. In fact, you could argue this is one of the most religious societies that's ever existed in the history of the world. These guys went to synagogue every Saturday. The attendance rate, the, the church participation rate, if you will, in this society, in this culture, will blow away probably anything you have in even the most church countries that you will find today. They go, they participate, they're involved. They know their Bible. And yet, it is into this culture, with the Pharisees providing the contrast, that Jesus comes. doesn't matter how religious you are. There's a difference between living a Christian, I heard this term this last week, there's a difference between living a Christian-based life versus being a Christian. We live in a Christian country, so-called. And, and I'm not trying to confuse you or anything. I assure you, our attendance rates at church are way, way less than what these guys have. We call ourselves a Christian country here in Canada. We're not, by any stretch, Christian. We have a Christian-based democracy we have Christian-based values. But so did these guys. And yet that wasn't sufficient. Jesus calls to him his 12 disciples. He's just gotten done confronting the Pharisees. He's just gotten done proclaiming a gospel which is every bit offensive. And he calls to him his 12 disciples, guys that have been following him, that have been hearing him, that have been watching him as he's interacting, and he's getting ready to send them out. It says he gives to them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, as we're working our way through this passage, we understand these guys are called to do something that is foundational to the church. So as we look at this first verse, we understand that when Jesus instructs these guys, there's a priority of order and then there's an equality of worth. They're called to do certain things which they clearly saw, which were clearly evident in their ministry, which may or may not be clearly evident in our ministry. As we approach this text, one of the objections that you hear, well, you know, why can't we just cast out demons and perform miraculous healings as a prelude to preaching the gospel. I mean, if we could do it the way the disciples did it, it would be way, way easier. It'd be so much easier if we could just work supernatural works the way that they did. First off, you're misunderstanding the sentence. Because you make this statement say, you're not actually called, and some of you may not actually have the ability 
to heal or to cast out demons in the way that these guys did. But wait, it says here in chapter 10, verse 1, that they could do it. Priority of order versus equality of worth. And also, a little bit of a superficial reading of the verse. Now, as Matthew writes the gospel here, he makes a statement here. He called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. Comma, hard comma. Notice the comma. To cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. Now, Dr. A.T. Robertson, probably the most premier, most eminent Greek, Koine Greek scholar we've ever seen, commenting on this verse in his massive 1,500-page grammar of the Greek grammar of the New Testament in light of historical research. It's like a telephone book. Commenting on this verse makes the statement with which I heartily agree. This is clearly, in his exact words, this is clearly an adverbial infinitive of purpose. Clearly. Clearly. Thank you, Dr. Robertson, for pointing out to us the obvious, you know. Now, some of you are here, you're like, I have no idea what you just said. And the truth is, like, I've taken Greek. I kind of had a struggle. I was like, I'm not sure what that is either. I had to, like, do some research. Now, I've put up, I've put together a, an alternative sentence. This is not by any means inspired. This is just me trying to throw up a sentence to try and illustrate to you what's going on. So, Levi, if you just throw that up. This is a similar sentence to what you'll have in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. It says here, the oldest brother called to himself his 12 younger brothers. Okay, that's pretty close to what we got in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Jesus called to himself his 12 disciples. Okay, so far, so good. No real difference between my sentence and the inspired word of God. Now, it goes on. He gave them authority. Now, when you read Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. Again, so far, so good. No deviation. It says, what did he, now here's where it's, I'm going to get a little creative to try and show you the, the difference in what's going on here. He gave them authority to drive his car to grandfather's house, comma, hard comma, to drive other cars and trucks which belonged to his grandfather and to swim in the swimming pool. Now, that is something that we could legitimately do. I have brothers and sisters, you know, you guys are part of families as well, you've got kids, so you're going to give them the keys to your car. Now, when you give them the keys to your car, that's going to empower them to do something, to drive the car. Now, if they have their N, you don't want them getting their other 11 brothers in the vehicle with them. They're only allowed one. Okay? just want to spell that out. But you get in your car, and you're going to drive to grandfather's house. Now, in this particular sentence, is the oldest brother giving his younger brothers the authority to drive all of the cars and trucks and toys, snowmobiles and whatnot, at grandfather's house? Is he giving them the authority to do that? Not directly, but indirectly, yes. That's what I need you to hear this morning. Not directly, but indirectly, yes. What he is doing is he is giving them the permission and the power and the ability to utilize his vehicle to take them to a place where other things can happen. Is he going to necessarily make those other things happen at that place? No, not necessarily. Is it his expectation in this sentence that those things might happen once they get there? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there is a distinction between what's going on here. If you're here today and you're reading, say, the NIV translation, you might miss this because what it does, for example, in the ESV, I'm just going to show this to you, says he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, comma, to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. If you have uh, the NIV, it'll say he gave them authority to cast out unclean spirits and to heal every disease and every affliction. See, it, it, it sort of shrinks the sentence. It condenses it down for sake of understanding. The translators of the NIV didn't think you and I would clearly grasp what an adverbial infinitive of purpose is, apparently. So they're trying to simplify it for us. They're trying to streamline it. The statement here is, he gave to him his 12 disciples, he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. Hear that. Hear that loud and clear. You, the followers of Jesus Christ, have authority over unclean spirits. Does that mean that you will heal every disease and every affliction or cast demons out and 
and drive them out of people? Do you have the capacity and the wherewithal to do that? That's not exactly what this verse is saying. That's not exactly the verse. That's not what it's exactly meaning. Now, why do I make such a stink over this? We read this verse and we think, okay, so our job as Christians is to go out and make society better. So, providing for medical health care, building hospitals, building orphanages, digging wells for clean running water. Like, these are things we're supposed to do. That's how we, how we make society better. No. No. You read the NIV, you might come to that conclusion. But that's not the truth of it. It's not a correct understanding of the verse. This is how you make society better. You begin to exercise authority over unclean spirits. So what does that mean? I want you to turn with me in your Bibles. I want you to go to Zechariah. Oh, where is it? My notes. I want you to go to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2. Go right back to the Old Testament. It's the second to last book there, so just a couple of books over. Go to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2. What is an unclean spirit? What is it? This term is only used once in the Old Testament in this passage that I'm about to show you. In the New Testament, we'll see it repeatedly used throughout. Universally, in the New Testament, it refers to what can be clearly identified as demonic you know, spirits, de demons, demonic spirits, satanic type stuff. In Revelation, when it's referencing the Antichrist and the false prophet and the beast and all this sort of stuff, it says that the, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I saw coming out of the, you know, the unholy, the ungodly trinity, the evil trinity, three unclean spirits looking like frogs. That's, that's the statement in Revelation. So in the New Testament, it clearly identifies unclean spirits with demons, with, with Satan, with the power of darkness, with the kingdom of darkness. Now, it's only used, this term unclean spirit is only used once in the Old Testament, and it's right here in this passage. So to give you a real clear idea of what's going on with an unclean spirit, what that means, what the implications of, our, what the implications of that are for this verse in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, we need to look at this. So look with me. We're going to go verse 2, and we're going to go through verse 6. Idolatry, it's talking about idolatry, and it's going to make a statement. This is prophetic. Let me give you a little context. The prophet is declaring what it's going to look like in the day that the Lord comes. This is at a time in Israel's history in which they are horribly caught up in idolatry, worshiping, blatantly worshiping false gods, or something that was very prevalent, very very significant in Zechariah's day, trying to worship the true God in a false way. This is what he says. It says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the, look at this, the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. You say what is false, and you claim that it's from God. And his father and his mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. Verse 4, on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak. This is a reference to Elijah and Elisha. Uh, that was the mantle that he wore, and it, it became, by this point in the Old Testament, by this point in the history of Israel, it became sort of the standard prophetic garment that people would wear if they were prophesying. So it says he will not, again, put on the hairy cloak when he uh, I've lost my place. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. 
In other words, he's going to deny that he ever did anything prophet or prophet-like. He's going to say, no, I'm just a farm boy. In fact, I'm a hired hand. In fact, I'm a slave. My parents sold me to be a farm boy as a kid. I've been, I've been working a farm my whole life. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a hairy cloak to wear. I'm not even trying to pretend. I'm, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. And then his friends are going to say to him, well, what about these wounds on your back? And he'll say, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. Now, the statement there in Zechariah, God says there's a day coming in which I will cut off all idolatry. I will cut it off in the land of Israel. You won't worship what is false anymore. That's the first thing. Number two, you won't worship the true God in a false way anymore because not only will I cut off the idols, I'll put an end to prophets who prophesy lies in the name of the Lord, who portray themselves to look like legitimate prophets. In fact, there's a day coming in which the guys who do that sort of thing, they'll be ashamed that they ever did it. In fact, there's a day coming in which they will be so ashamed that they used to engage in that behavior that they will present themselves as one of the lowest members of society, a hired slave who works on a farm. They would rather to have the indignity of being a slave than to have the much worse indignity of a past in which they pretended to be a representative of God. When it comes to these wounds, people are like, what about these, these marks, these, these cuts, these scars on you? Now, prophets in this day and age, and, and it still happens today, you'll still find this stu- stuff going on in Tibet and other countries, that part of their prophetic sort of vision that they would have, they would act like they were in this trance, uh, they, would, they would sort of get into this sort of seizure-like state, and uh, they would have sharp knives or... or uh, sharp object of some form and they would, they would gouge themselves and, and make themselves bleed as a, as a means of sort of appeasing the deity, as a means of sort of manipulating the deity to have pity on them to speak further revelation to them. In fact, you can still see this behavior. It happens today. Uh, I had a, a friend who was a missionary. I knew a fellow who was a missionary to, uh, to China, and he observed in, in the northern regions of China, and Mongolia specifically, there was a guy there, and he's got this, uh, it was a prophet with uh, one of the false religions there, and they've got this sword, and on one edge of the sword, it's, it's razor sharp, uh, you know, it's like a regular sword, but on the other side, it's sort of serrated. It's got like a, ser- a serrated edge on it, um, more like what you'd see with like a steak knife to cut your steak with. And he says, these guys, and he's observed this, he said these guys, they would get themselves worked up into a frenzy, and they had their heads shaved bald. They're an offshoot of, of sort of the Buddhist monk type of religion system, not exactly Buddhist. He said as they're working their way through this sort of, this sort of act, they would take that sword, and they'd be chanting and dancing around with a serrated edge on the backside of it, and they'd put it right here, and they'd just pull that sword all the way down their forehead, gash their heads open, gush blood everywhere, as a means of manipulating the deity to speak to them. That same practice is happening here in the book of Zechariah. They're claiming to worship the true God. They're claiming to worship the God that you and I claim to worship. And they become so ashamed of what they pretended to be that now they're going to present themselves as farmers, slaves, no less. But their past still haunts them. And people are like, if you're really just a farmer, what about those marks on your body? What are those from? And there's no good story, so they're going to say, well, you know, my, my friends cut me up like this. Does that sound plausible? What kind of a friend cuts you up like that? I want you to understand what the spirit of uncleanness is. Satan's strategy from the very beginning is not to take what is true 
and to come up with a lie that's 180 degrees the opposite. See, most people can spot blatant lies. Now, his desire is ultimately to get you to 180 degree the opposite. Don't misunderstand. If Satan can get you to the point where you'll say, you know what, I know who Satan is. I know Satan is the exact opposite of what is true and holy and good in this world, and I worship Satan. If he can get you there, that's exactly where he'll want you. But he knows, for most of us, we're not going to be Satan worshipers. So his strategy from the beginning has never been to come up with a polar opposite, 180 degree, the opposite direction lie. No, the most effective strategy is a lie that's mostly true. The best counterfeit is something that's really hard to tell from the real thing. Nobody's going to go out with real Monopoly money and try and buy something at the gas station. No. You want a dollar bill that looks sort of similar. Oh, wait, Canadian money does look like Monopoly money. Just joking, just joking. <laughs> it's very hard. You, you know those dollars. It's it got this holographic see-through thing on it, and, and you know, there's no way you can really... For, I mean, I, don't, I personally don't have knowledge of these things, but to my understanding, there's no real way that you could forge a, you know, a, a Canadian dollar bill. If you did, it'd have to look pretty wild because it has to look like the Canadian dollar bill, which looks pretty wild. Sorry, sorry, my Americanism is shining through. $5 bill, okay, $5 bill, $20 bill. <laughs> The point that I'm making is, uh, I'm an American, that's all right. I, I'm a permanent resident now, does that count? Like, does that work? Okay. The point that I'm making is that Satan's strategy is not 180 degree opposite. It's pretty close to what is true. It's got just enough distortion to just sway you a little bit. If you're traveling to the moon, and uh, you want to land somewhere on the moon. If your course, from the moment you leave this planet's atmosphere, if your course is incorrect by one-tenth of one percent, you will miss the moon by 100,000 miles. In other words, you're going almost straight there. You're just a little off, just a little, not, not, just a little, little bit, not even, not even what we would consider significant. But guess what? It is significant. When Jesus says to the apostles, I give you authority over unclean spirits, in the context in which he is preaching against Pharisees, who are mostly right, who are maybe just a little bit off, you need to understand that even though they're just a little bit off, that little bit makes an eternity of difference in whether or not somebody goes to heaven or goes to hell. And so when Jesus says to the disciples, I give you authority over unclean spirits, and we know that up until this point, the only reference that has existed in the Bible to unclean spirits Jesus is alluding to the prophecy of Zechariah. He's calling these guys to go out and to confront the satanic force which is alive and well in the world, which expresses itself and makes itself known through guys that are mostly correct. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. To confront just the error and the heresy of guys who look really religious, who look really spiritual, they're just a little wrong. But that little bit makes all the difference. It makes a world of difference. Now, some of you are like, okay, that's good. I get that. Right on. Let's be, let's be committed to the truth. What about this second part of the phrase where it says to cast out demons and to heal every disease and every affliction? Like I said, it's an adverbial infinitive of purpose. The question sometimes comes to us, you know, I wish that we could heal diseases and supernaturally cast out demons and, and do this sort of thing. Because if we could do this sort of thing, then we could preach the gospel. But actually, you're putting the cart before the horse. And this verse makes it explicitly clear. In the King James translation, they would render this verse with a wherefore. So, you know, what's the wherefore, therefore? That's really how you would best render an adverbial infinitive of purpose. Adverbs answer the question, where 
uh, how, to what degree. So what Jesus is saying here with this adverbial infinitive of purpose is that his ultimate goal, his ultimate desire is that every disease would be healed, that every demon would be cast out, that the spirit of cleanness would ultimately be removed and purged from this earth. But where is it possible for that reality to exist? Where is it possible for all the demons to be gone, for every disease to be healed? That possibility exists only where the truth reigns supreme where Jesus Christ is proclaimed as ultimate and as authoritative. In other words, we're forgetting why we're afflicted in the first place. When Satan deceives Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what happens to them? They die. They begin to live a moral life which after like 900 years they're going to go into the grave. What happens to you and me because of our sin? Exact same thing. What is the cause and what is the effect? The cause is that we are sinners. That is the primary, ultimate reason for why any of us experience satanic, demonic affliction in our lives. That is the ultimate, primary reason for why any of us experience disease. All of you are going to die. Me, you, all of us, because we've sinned. Which means that if we heal diseases and afflictions and cast out demons without first addressing the spirit of uncleanness which resides in all of us. Those healings are never going to be long-term because you've misunderstood God's purpose in the disease in the first place. It's a great thing to struggle with sickness. It's a blessing. Only a Christian could say that. Uh, to, To be afflicted with disease reminds you of the very powerful truth which we try to ignore all our lives try to drown it out with going to movies and drinking beer and chasing after the pleasures of this world the reality that we need God that we have to worship him that we are dependent upon him that we are not our own that we cannot live apart from him and and we live in a really wealthy country with beautiful money don't misunderstand me we live in a country with lots of benefits. And what we do all too often with that is we deceive ourselves into thinking that with all of these luxuries, with all of the pleasures and the benefits of living in this great country, we actually are the captain of our own vessel. Well, that lie that we tell ourselves comes crashing to an end when we hear words like, I'm sorry, you've got cancer. Or, I'm sorry, you've got congestive heart failure. Or we experience the tragedy of a loved one who dies horrifically and unexpectedly in a car wreck. I read this past week about an individual who served on the Kamloops search and rescue team. Healthy man, strong as an ox, fit. This is a guy who for fun goes out into the snow and rescues people. He's out one evening hiking with his family perfectly fit not a thing wrong with him and he just drops dead unexpected sudden heart attack now those things are tragic but they're painful and very necessary reminders we can't live apart from God now these guys they show through their healing ministry, casting out demons and healing diseases, that Jesus is the only answer. They didn't go out into Galilee specifically for the purpose to heal diseases and to cast out demons. They did those things. But the ultimate thrust of this verse was they waged war against falsehood and deception against things that perpetrated themselves as being from God that really were not. Is that where we are, church? Bridge Baptist, listen to me. We want to be like these disciples. Well, let's ask ourselves some really challenging questions, shall we? Do we see our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ? Do we understand our lives as disciples being about a mission, a war that we are waging 
against the spirit of darkness and deception and falsehood? Say, yeah, absolutely I am. Okay, let me ask you another question. Do you understand your Christian walk as a pursuit of purity of belief? Do you see your relationship with the Father, with the Son, empowered by the Spirit, as a daily effort to get as close and closer and ever inching further and further closer to the purest, truest belief, the most accurate, most correct understanding of God as you possibly can? Or do we tell ourselves, well, I know, I know enough. I'm good. I, I understand the, the basics. That's all that's really necessary. You might want to reconsider those beliefs in, in light of this verse right here. Some of us have friends that we know they're not Christian. We know they have no understanding of Jesus, but they live Christian-based lives in a Christian-based country. In terms of what they believe, it's polluted all the way through. They don't know enough to actually trust in Jesus. They don't know that they can only trust in Jesus. Do we see our calling as their friend to confront that lie? I really challenge you. You know, in the worship service, Dustin read from Malachi, in the second chapter of that book, makes a statement around verse 11 thereabouts. That from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, God's name will be known throughout all the world and it will be exalted. He himself promises to accomplish this. And we see him accomplishing it today. All right, where am I? There we go. Missionaries, even now in this moment, are being sent all over the world, and they're coming from all over the world. It used to be that we understood the United States primarily as the number one missions-sending country in the world. And it's true, it's still the number one missionary-sending country in the world, but not per capita. And they're not just coming from the United States. You know, there's a lot of missionaries that are actually going to the United States from all over the world. Today, there are over 4,000 known evangelical mission agencies sending out a combined 250,000 missionaries from over 200 countries. That's up from the 1,800 known mission agencies and the 70,000 missionaries that existed in 1980. Think about that. In 30 years, we went from 70,000 to 250,000 known missionaries who have left their countries, who have left their homelands, who have left their families, who have said, for the sake of God's name, I will go somewhere else. Nearly half of the world's top missionary sending countries are now located in the global south. Of the 10 countries sending the most missionaries in 2010, there were three from the global south, Brazil, South Korea, and India. Of the 10 countries, oh, I already read that. Other notable missionary centers in South America, Philippines, Mexico, China, China, Colombia, and Nigeria. The United States does still stop, top the chart in terms of being the number one missionary sending country in the world. They sent 127,000 in 2010 compared to the 34,000 that was sent by number two ranked Brazil. But that, con that number really means nothing when you look at it per capita. Do you know who the number one missionary sending country in the world is per capita? South Korea. Country that lives right next door to a trigger happy nuclear nut job. Kim Jong-un, I forget what is the new guy's name is. Do you think living under the threat of imminent death clarifies for them what really matters in life? I'll show you the numbers. 
South Korea sent 1,014 missionaries. This is 1,014 per million church members. The United States, which sends the total majority number of missionaries, per million church members, only sent 614. So per capita, we're talking about 50% more, roughly, coming from South Korea than America. Now listen. We live in a Christian-based country. And we think that there are strong churches, stronger churches than Bridge Baptist Church, who are sending missionaries all around the world. And we're right to think that way. But who's going next door to where you live? Because God has called you to do it. When I look at these numbers, I see 250,000 people going from everywhere to everywhere else. We have the most frenetic missionary activity taking place in this point in human history than has ever taken place before. People who have gone out for the sake of God's name to confront and to combat the spirit of uncleanness. It is clear that the prophecy from Malachi chapter 2 is becoming painfully fulfilled. God, in his glory, is exalting his name. What role do you want to play in the inevitable conclusion of human history? My prayer for you is not that you'd go to some faraway place with mosquito nets and no running water unless God calls you. My prayer for you is that you would follow God's call to go right across the street to your neighbor's house and to confront the spirit of uncleanness, to give them the truth of how amazing Jesus Christ is. Let's bow for a word of prayer.